You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Read it. Let's stand together as we do for God's Word, and if in the middle of it you get too tired and you have to sit down, that's okay. But we're going to read through it, because this reads, you cannot read just part of this chapter. It just doesn't work. Because it's a narrative, it's a, it's a historical narrative about uh, what took place almost, well, over 3,000 years ago. So place yourself back then if you can, transport yourself back. You can't take your computer with you, you can't take, you. You can't take anything electronic with you, you can't even take pen and paper. Okay, so you are going to witness, as you're back there, what is taking place <laughs> so long ago as Israel begins under the leadership of Joshua, to take control of the land. And as you read this then, all these fancy names, you won't remember them, but remember the story. The story is good for us to remember. Stories are good. They remind us of things that God has done. So here we go. We're going to read this entire chapter 10. We'll do it in English first, we'll do it in Spanish after that. Okay. <laughs> no hablo espanol. As... As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, <coughs> because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors, so Adonai Zedek we should just call him Sam or something. It's easier to read. So he, the king of Jerusalem sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Egdon, Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings, the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces, and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people to war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, <clears throat> for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came, up, came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley... Of, of Aijalon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. In this, is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp of Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden at the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, 
And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified, fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. <clears throat> then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it in that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it he left nothing remaining, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it, and the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all the people with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king and its towns and every person in it. <clears throat> he left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and to its king. And finally, so Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. <laughs> may God bless his word today, and may that story kind of, you may be float around in your head this morning. A long story, I apologize for how long it is. It's not me that wrote it, so we had to read it. It's, there's something about listening to a narrative, listening to a story about what's taking place in some particular situation so long ago, and how God did something particular in the middle of Joshua chapter 10. We've had a lot of interesting things in the first nine chapters of Joshua, things that have been uh, sometimes misunderstood, things that are hard to understand, this, this chapter is definitely hard to understand, but it's also one where there was a miracle that took place that only once in Scripture do you ever see this happening. And we're going to dwell on that this morning a little bit in this entire chapter, but we had to read all of it to get the whole picture. I'm going to do something different this morning. I, I'm kind of doing things in reverse. Normally after a sermon, you have application, right? You have things that we should probably think about and do before we leave this place, after listening to 
a message about God's Word. But to, we need to do some, I guess you would call it, some pre-application this morning. <clears throat> There's an importance in understanding history, for one. And there's also a necessity of understanding the miraculous. I have titled this message on purpose, The Battle is the Lord's, A Story of God, His People, and the Miraculous. In history, if if you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, just picture it like an hourglass, where at the top you have all this sand and it's trying to work its way down to the middle of that hourglass so that it can pass through and get to the bottom, right? And it takes a certain amount of time to do that. In this case, it takes a lot of time. But as we get closer, and here in Joshua 10, we're getting a little bit closer to the middle of that hourglass because all of history before has led to where we are right now, Joshua 10. He is, God is narrowing down in his plan, in his work, to a tiny little nation about the size of New Jersey, okay? And that's where we are right now in bringing that that to pass, to finally where Israel becomes the focus all through the Old Testament. That tiny little land becomes the focus of God in bringing about the ultimate plan, the beginning of the end. As we get closer to that center, And as we follow that through into the Gospels of the New Testament, the focus then becomes right there at the middle of that hourglass comes to Jesus. Because out of the nation of Israel, out of the bloodline of Israel, out of the, excuse me, out of the bloodline of all those people that are listed in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke, we come to a particular person. So after that, after Jesus came and and we had the Gospels, the most important message that we've ever received in our lifetime, and the world itself has never been the same because what took place at that narrow little part in the hourglass of God's history. We cannot ever forget how that came about. And as we think about that, (coughs) it begins from there. After the Gospels, after Jesus' miraculous birth, life, death, and resurrection, after that, the whole world changes again, and it fans out to the entire world once again. So right here, we are in history. If you take yourself back to these 3,000 years ago, that's a lot of centuries back. To take yourself back to that and see that it's now where God is beginning to bring about a plan that will ultimately change the world forever. And Joshua's part of that. And what happens here in Joshua 10 is important. So we see from Genesis to Revelation, there's a miraculous story of creation. There's the fall. There's the coming of Messiah, bringing the solution to the sin question. There's the gospel to be preached. There's a guideline for life. And then finally, there's an end of all things. When we finally reach the true and real promised land, Joshua is in the midst of taking what God has promised him. As he does, and as you look at Scripture, you cannot ignore, and I cannot ignore, the miraculous. What takes place miracles that you read about. It demands that we understand, not only we understand that God interferes with and intervenes in the history of man and in the future of man, but he also accompanies those, that intervention, oftentimes with miracles. And miracles are simply a phenomenon that cannot be explained by any known law. It cannot be explained by any known natural law. You got the creation of the world. You got creation of man. You got the plagues of Egypt. If if you've seen the movie Ten Commandments, it's awesome to watch the plagues of Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea. The fire in the wilderness following the Israelites. The constant supply of manna crossing the Jordan, as we have said before, the hearts of the enemy of Israel. The enemies of Israel, their hearts melted. Why? Why? Because they saw, or not saw, they heard about 
They didn't see it on TV. They didn't read it on the computer or on Facebook. They heard about it by word of mouth, what God was doing for this small group of people that had been huddling around this wilderness for 40 years. They heard about, as Rahab said, they heard about, and the the people of Jericho, their hearts melted because of what they heard. Melted with fear, because they knew that whatever God they worship sure sure doesn't do things like that. And so the miraculous has to be part of our understanding of Scripture. Uh, Here in Joshua 10, there's going to be a miracle we talk about. Then there's many miracles where God provided food, shelter, protection from storms, healing of broken bodies by the scores, turning water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead. And then finally, ultimately, because of our understanding of God's intervention in history, By way of miracles, we come to the Gospels. And what happens in the Gospel is the ultimate miracle of all time. So if you you and I, and in our message to the world outside here, where we're trying to introduce them to Jesus, we have to make them and help them understand that a miraculous thing happened almost 2,000 years ago. And it's because of that that we are here today. It's because of that because we believe in what we have not seen. What does Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. We have not seen him face to face. Many did. We haven't. So we look back to what God has done in a miraculous way. And so if we accept that miracle, right, we have to accept all the other miracles that come from Genesis to Revelation. And that's important. I, want you to, I really want you to grab onto that. Because if, we, if, we, don't, if we, we can only go back so far in our thinking, we go back to creation, we weren't there either. But we go back to the miracle of creation where something out of nothing was made and where the, that world that was created was populated with people. And all through from the time of Genesis all the way up to Joshua chapter 10, you had miracle after miracle after miracle of God on purpose intervening in the story of man. And that is what we're going to talk about today. You know, there's a lot of, there's people that would tell you, and I don't agree with it, but they would tell you that science and the Bible do not mix. That you either believe one or you believe the other. And that's not true. That is not true. Science is a wonderful thing. Science is the study of things that we have at our, as resources here on this planet. Science is the study of biology. It's the study of archaeology. It's the study of zoology, physics, math. All those subjects I hope you liked in high school because they're, they're important subjects where man has discovered from what he sees and what he has to work with, he has discovered and invented so many things that have prospered us in our life. That comes from what God has set aside at creation. We discover as we move along throughout history of man, we discover certain things, and especially in the last 50 to 100 years, we have absolutely mushroomed in our discoveries of what this world has to offer. <clears throat> Joshua didn't, didn't drive fly jets or, or drive automobiles. He didn't have electricity. He didn't have those things. And yet he had what was at his what God had provided for resources for him to fight a battle. And where science goes too far, is when they try to explain the unexplainable. (laughs) And when we can't explain something, we either toss it aside because we don't want to deal with it, or we look at it front, back, upside down. We look at it in such detail that ultimately the only source of that has to be someone that's a lot bigger than I am. Science in itself does not in any way contradict, it should not contradict anything that God says in his word. 
And this miracle that we're going to talk about in Joshua 10 is one that's attacked oftentimes as being a ridiculous, absolutely unscientific, totally unnatural occurrence that in our understanding of God's world or this world, our understanding of what we know, it's impossible to believe that this happened. Right? So there's, there are no miracles that happen because of science. There's the miracle of, if you want to call miracles of advancement, the miracles of technology, those are wonderful things. But they only go so far. They are, to meant, they are meant to enhance the life of you and me. Because we love this world in which we live, and we want to not just protect it, but we want to use it. We want to have the ability to live a life that we consider good. Joshua lived 3,000 years ago. Was his life good? I'm sure it was. Because he had at his disposal what he knew at that time. And that's an important thing to remember as we look into this passage, that what he had, what appeared to him to be, was what you and I have at the same time. We can only see so far you go so far, and then God has to take over. That's just human nature. It's not a scapegoat. It's not denigrating science. It's not denigrating our search for knowledge. None of that, because <clears throat> God has blessed us with that. Do we want to go back, give up all that we have today? Do we want to go back and live like they did 3,000 years ago? Do you want that? I don't. Not in that sense, because of the advancements that have been made have allowed us to proclaim the gospel even more widely than ever before. And that comes from man, men and women working hard to take what God has given and use it for his glory. There's no opposition as far as I'm concerned in Scripture where science goes wrong is when they, when they cannot explain when God intervenes and God messes with his creation. And he does it, you cannot believe. In, in 2 Timothy 3.16 says what all scripture is inspired, or literally all scripture is God-breathed is the word. God has given us his word. And it's profitable for what? For teaching, for correction, for, for reproof, and for instruction in righteousness. Why? So that the men and women of God can grow in their understanding of him and then can do the work that God's called them to do. That's the purpose of Scripture. But that's the beauty of the foundation of Scripture. So if we believe that, if you believe that this right here is the inspired word of God, that takes an act of faith as well. But if you believe that, then everything that takes place between Genesis and Revelation is important for us to understand. And it's also, if it's true, and if you believe that it's true, then everything that takes place in it that you read about is true. And so what happens here in this area of the miraculous, men and women of God have got to grab onto, we may not see the parting of the Red Sea, we may not see a pillar of fire, we may not see the resurrection, but miracles still happen, miraculous still happens, in everyone that ever gives their life to Christ, that in itself is a miracle. Science can't explain it. I can't explain it. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to do that work. So don't... You've heard some... In the old days, you would hear preachers say, hey, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's it. I could care, I could care less what anybody else says. That's pretty harsh. What I'm saying is, I believe what Scripture says, but I also understand how we work in this world in which he's given us, and that takes knowledge. That takes hard work. That takes science. That takes politics. It takes everything to make our week the way that it is. And that's the importance of Joshua chapter 10, and we haven't even dove into it yet. It's almost 11 o'clock. Um, but let's do that. Let's jump into it because in verses 1 through 15, those are the ones that I'm really going to concentrate on today. 
You've heard the phrase, if you're old like me, you've, I mean, I wasn't alive during World War II, so don't think I'm that old. But <clears throat> on December 7th, 1941, what happened? Those of you who know your history. Pearl Harbor, yeah, good for you. So it doesn't matter how old we are, we remember what happened. Roosevelt was the president. Franklin D. Roy, I didn't know him. He wasn't president when I was born. I was born kind of right after the war, but not during the war. So what did he say? He said, December 7th, on December 8th, he said, December 7th will be a day that lives in infamy. You've heard that? It will always be remembered. This here in Joshua chapter 10, this, this portion of what happens while they're fighting this battle will be a day like no other, will be one that will never be repeated. It will live in infamy. infamy. So what kind of a unique day is maybe special for you? What special day has kind of marked your life? You know, obviously you were born. That's a special day, right? At least I hope it is. <clears throat> your first day of school. <laughs> I have to tell you, my first day of school, I'm going to tell you a short story. I love stories, so sorry. I did not want to go to school. Okay. I was four when I started kindergarten. I was four for a week and then I turned five. Okay. So I went to, my mom took me and she promised me, that was her big mistake, she promised me she would take me to school and she would stay with me. Well, do you think she stayed with me? No. I walk into that classroom, she walks out the door, and the kindergarten teacher went to the door, shut it, and wouldn't let me pass. So what I did, I went to put my coat away, and he had these giant closets on the side of the room with folding doors, and you walk in and hang your coat up and put your lunchbox in there or whatever. I went in and hung my coat up and didn't come out. <laughs> and I had to be literally coaxed and almost dragged out of that closet because I did not want to go to school. I remember that day as if it was yesterday. Because I thought, Mom, how could you do that to me? But that day is one of, that will always be inside my mind because I had to learn to do something on my own. And I, after, you know, after a few days, I was fine. I never did that, <laughs> never did that again, never hid in the closet again. But those are, those are days to remember. The first job that you get, getting accepted to college, graduating from college or high school, Wedding, getting married, the birth of a child, maybe a tragedy or a death of a loved one. Um, you may be chosen for a special award or something. So there are days that, that, that we mark in our life that oftentimes help us remember. It's almost like why monuments sometimes are kind of important, or graveside markers, or historical markers, because they remind us of something that took place a long time ago. And that this particular thing in this story is really awesome. We have to ask ourselves as we go to, this, go to this passage, that is in all good stories, especially this one, we need to ask two questions. What actually happened? And what are we to learn from it? We should probably ask ourselves that every time we read Scripture. But in this one, it definitely, the un, it unfolds in 1 through 5 with a fearful king, Again, a king of Jerusalem who had heard about the not just the victories of Joshua and his armies, but also about what God had done in the miracles of the wilderness. They'd heard all that, and he feared. And so he gathered all these other kings together and went against Gibeon. Remember when Joe preached last week about Gibeon? What did they do? They deceived Joshua into, into protecting them. They knew that they might die by the sword because of Joshua and his armies. But they... And so they forced Israel, in a sense, through deception, to form a pact with them that they would not kill them. And what did they do? They set them out to be woodcutters and all this other stuff. But they did not kill them. And so they honored that vow. They honored that covenant that they made with them. And so these five are going to now go against Gibeon. And that's where it begins. So the miracle... That happens. Let's look at that again. As soon as, well, let's see, where does it start? In verse 8, remember what Joshua chapter 1, verse 5 said? When God said, I will give you 
land give you this. And that promise is like an overarching umbrella over this entire story. There's, and, you know, we kind of live under that too. There's promises of God that, that are just covering us every way. This promise of, to Joshua was that I will give, you will be victorious. I will give you this land. And yet, under that umbrella of promise, you have all these battles that take place where a lot of blood is shed, where there's not necessarily, a, sometimes they, they fail and lose like they did with Achan. They, they, they screw it up sometimes, but they're still under that umbrella of promise that God has said, I will give you this. This is your inheritance. Just remember that promise. It's yours. You know, we have that same promise. You know, what do we have to do with that promise? When we're living under a promise that God has given us, we have to be somehow willing not only to accept it as truth, but also to be obedient underneath that umbrella, to, to, to recognize that there are steps that are taken underneath that protection and promise that he's given to us. It takes, it takes different steps. It takes different events to where we finally reach the goal of what that promise has promised us. And in that, we are in that right now. We are in that promise of God that from beginning to end, he has promised that someday all this will come to an end of what we know and what we fear, what we, uh, what we are afraid of, what we don't like about the world. All that will come to an end to where that promise will be fulfilled. And boy, it's a long time. This has been going on a couple thousand years now, right? That promise doesn't come overnight. Same with this small umbrella over the nation of Israel. They have to take steps to fulfill that promise, and there are frustrations along the way. There's death along the way sometimes. There's failure along the way sometimes. But in the end, God says, you will win. <laughs> 1 John 5.4 says, Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So, the story continues from verse 6 to 15. The Gibeonites kind of call in their chips and say, Joshua, you promised you wouldn't kill us. We're here, and now we need your help. Please come. Please come and help us. But in verse 12 through 14, I'm going to read it again. At, the time, at that time, Joshua, well, before that even, when God sent the hailstones, and there's an, important, there's an important sentence that happens after that where he says, there were more who died because of the stones, the hailstones, than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So God, this is God's battle. And then Joshua prays, and he says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stands still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. That, even more than the miracle that we're going to talk about, even more than that is what, is what ends that, when he says, the Lord heeded the voice of a man, and the Lord fought for Israel. Now what, from a scientific standpoint, from what we know today about how this world works, how our world is rotating on its axis here and there, causes all the summer, spring, winter, falls, all those things we can predict with extreme accuracy as to when they begin, when they end, where the sun will be at a certain time of the day, where it will be at a certain time of the year. We're able to, you can get a book and you can look, if you're that bored and want some bathroom reading, read about what, where this where the sun is every single day, where the moon is every single day, when it will be in its fullness, when it will not be in its fullness, when the sun is closest to us and when it's not. But what does it appear? You and I and scientists today still use the exact same language 
that is used here. In other words, in, in Joshua's writing, he says, the sun stopped. Or the sun stood still, sorry. And the moon stopped. Well, the scientifically, who revolves around who? We know that we and all the planets revolve around the sun. The sun doesn't revolve around us. When you get up in the morning and you see a beautiful sunrise, is it really a sunrise? It's more like an earth rise. The earth has moved so that the sun now begins to look like it's climbing in the sky. But it's not moving. At night, in the beautiful sunset, we, you know, when we moved to Nebraska, one thing that really hit me was the fact that the ground is so flat. You know, I was used to mountains and hills where sometimes you never saw a sunrise, you never saw a sunset because something was blocking it. Whereas here you can see the sun rise and the sun set. And sometimes they're the most beautiful, beautiful things you've ever seen, particularly sunset. But is the sun moving? No. It appears to be, but it's not. Scripture uses and often uses figurative language. It uses literal language sometimes, but sometimes it tells a story that is more of a figurative story, one that, that kind of pictures in our minds something that God is doing that maybe isn't a literal explanation. So what appeared to be happening at this time, something had to happen. It wasn't that the sun stood still. That isn't necessarily scientific what happened, but something happened. Most likely, either the rotation of the earth was slowed down, something happened to where that day did not end. That is something you and I have never experienced, and probably never will. It's not necessary, but it was necessary then, because as God was beginning to do something particular with this small nation, he always preceded it, just like he did with the Gospels, just like he did with the beginning of the church, just like he will do when the end of, the, of time comes, when you get to the book of Revelation. God does Miracles at the beginnings of those. And what are miracles meant to do? They're meant to point us to somebody. They're meant to take our eyes off what we can see and put them on something that we cannot see. Take our eyes and view what God is doing and not being able to explain what it is that he's doing, but to say, wow, I couldn't do that. God can only do that. So something happened on that day. And it says, never again has it ever happened. Because it appeared as though, and that's the magic word, it appeared as though the sun didn't move. If you watch the sun long enough, which you shouldn't look at it too often, or if you watch the moon long enough, you can see it change in the sky, right? It goes up, and at noon or one o'clock goes over, and at night goes this way. And so it's, in our minds, it is constantly fluctuating. It is constantly on the move. This world is the one. This earth, the way God has set it up, that's the one that's on the move. That's the one that's moving. That's the one that somehow God keeps this in all... It keeps it from exploding. If you, if you stop the spin of the earth, we haven't done it. Hope we never do. But I think there would be quite a catastrophe it would just literally explode. So what happened to these people to see not what Joshua did, in fact, God killed more than he did, Joshua didn't do anything other than pray. And God honored his prayer. So in his mind, as you and I would look at the sunset at night and we see it just about halfway down, we would say, God, stop that. Don't let it set yet. I need, I need time to finish what you've called me to do. God, you said that if I, if I am obedient to you and I go out to these different cities, you will give them into my hand. You have promised that. But I need, it's getting dark. It will get dark, so I need more time. And what a, what a dependence on God that would be. I'm not sure how many times we've ever said that to him, to Lord, stop this because I don't want the day to go away. But in this case, the day didn't go away. And it's interesting, if you read, and I don't, I don't advise you read, I don't think we should read about pagan religions, but sometimes it's, it's interesting to know what they believe and what they There's a number of them that mention a day in history when the sun did not go down. 
I thought that's kind of interesting. Whether or not they were talking about this one, I don't know, but it seems like they probably are. So we still use that same language today. What appears to us, what appears to us is that we're still here and the sun doesn't move. And so he can finish his conquest. You know, it's, what, a, a, what a profound victory. But there has been no day like it or since. But the part that's important is when the Lord heeded the voice of a man and he fought for Israel. What nation do you know, as you study history of, on yourself, on your own, when you look at the nation of Israel, what do you see? You see the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Then you see what happens to them in the New Testament. What happens? Because of their unbelief, they are scattered. What does Paul say? He said, someday, Israel will be back. It's the most fascinating nation. If you ever want to study history, Israel is the one. If not the United States, but Israel is the one that is the most fascinating historical country you'll ever read about. Because today it's back in its land. The world hates it, has always hated it. The enemies of Israel in the Old Testament hated it just as much, if not more, than it's hated today. And in most people's minds, they would have absolutely no problem if the entire nation was obliterated and out of existence. Because they see it as a problem. And this is exactly as Joshua comes in and conquers, and he's going he's to do this in the rest of the book, where he conquers city after city after city, and the land is formed and stays that way for a long, long time. So that God could, through that tiny little land, bring about the largest miracle we've ever seen. What was promised to Abraham? Abraham, I promise you, that promise is still in effect. I promise you that your seed will be, will be larger than the sands of the sea. What comes out of you, Abraham, will literally change the world. And if you read <clears throat> the genealogy of Jesus... Abraham is mentioned there because we had to zero in from him all the way down throughout to that moment when that conception happened. That miracle in itself. Totally unexplainable miracle. And that is what faith is. It's not blind. It's believing something that God's word said is true and God reckoning to that, reckoning to us that as righteousness just like he did for Abraham. So see, the, the miraculous is so crucial to understanding how God works in this land, in this world. Without it, we would be, as Paul said, all, of all men, most miserable. There's only one thing that we can totally, from beginning to end, depend on in this world, and that is the miracle of the gospel. So the victory was good. The victory was seemingly rather swift. I don't think Joshua probably thought it was that swift. It's hard. It's tough. It takes a lot of work to win the battles of life. Now, we may not face you know, the kings of Jerusalem and the kings of Eglon and all the other kings that brought armies against Joshua. We may not face that in a literal sense. But what is it in our lives that we face every single day what are those challenges? What are those events? What are those, those painstaking things that we have to endure? What are they for? How do we deal with them? How do we handle the fact that we want to make this decision and yet it doesn't seem like God wants me to do that, so I need to go another direction? What is it when, when I try to, to form a relationship with someone to share with them? It doesn't, it doesn't always seem to happen the way that I think it would happen. What is it when the boss at work just is constantly on me and making me do things that I don't really want to do? The world is trying to get me to do things that I know for sure are against what God wants me to do. How do I handle that? What are those battles that we face? Families face problems. Unfortunately, there's probably not one family in here that is touched somewhere by some particular problem in a family. Be it with 
a spouse, an ex-spouse, children that are not living for the Lord, uh, problems with, with siblings or whatever it is, those things happen and they happen to all of us. Those battles are under, remember, we're under that umbrella of God's promise and yet we still struggle and fight just like Joshua had to do to make sure that we are part of and in tune with what God is trying to do in that overall promise. His overall promise is that, what? Someday, all this will be turned into good. All this will be wonderful. The earth itself will be changed. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime? We're living in a world that is basically a fallen world. And as Paul says, we're surrounded by crooked and perverse generations. And sometimes, before you were a Christian, you were probably part of that too. So was I. <laughs> and hopefully I'm not now. But there are times when you and I cause problems. But there, there are problems that we face every single day. So it's not necessarily quick. God could do, God could do anything to fix this, right? He could just literally swoop in and totally take over and say, from now on, you will have no problems, no issues in your life because I've taken care of them for you and for me. But why doesn't he do that? Why did Joshua have to face some defeat? Why did he have to make this covenant with people that he should not have made a covenant with because he did not pray and ask the Lord's will, the Lord's direction? Prayer is one of those things we were studying last night, and, and Isaiah asked me the question, does prayer really change things? We serve a God who we believe is sovereign. What does sovereign mean? It's just a fancy word for he's in control of everything. There's nothing that catches him by surprise. He could do anything he chooses to do and would have absolutely no resistance whatsoever. But in his sovereign will, somehow he has said he wants to work with fallen people, saved fallen people, to ask him, to ask him for, not for stuff all the time, but to ask him to work in somebody's life, or to ask him for peace, for understanding, for sharing, for giving, all the things that we're supposed to be praying about. Why does he want us to pray? He's in control of everything. But he has chosen in that control to give us the ability to pray and see things change. Sure, he knows beginning to end. There's, nothing's going to catch him by surprise. Life is full of seeming of what appears to you and me, just like it appeared the sun stopped in the sky. What appears to you and to me is that we, we see things happen because people pray. What happened when Paul prayed? Oh my gosh, the doors of the prison opened up. I mean, so there were, there were things that happened that are literally can be miraculous or can be just everyday blessings that God sends our way because we talk to him and communicate with him. I, I don't know about you, but I never pray enough. Never. If I feel guilty about, you know, guilt is one of those things that is supposed to change my behavior. So if I feel guilty about some things like that, I need to change that. I need to increase the time spent to, to get closer to him or to get closer to you, to get closer to friends, to get closer to my spouse. I need those times. And so fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, we never reach a point in this life. We never reach a point where all those things happen where all those problems are gone. But because we're under a promise that is eternal, something that never changes, oh, who wins? <laughs> so he went on to defeat. <clears throat> the, re the rest of the story is just one defeat after, or not one, one defeat of the enemy, one victory after another that we read about and why we had to read it that way because we see that God is moving one event at a time. He doesn't do it all at once. He takes it one moment at a time. One battle 
at a time. Are you ever battle-weary? I am. As humans. How many times have we said, God, just either take me home or change things where I can live the way I'm supposed to live, where my mind is totally focused on you, where my, any selfishness, any greed, any sin that's in my life is gone. That will happen someday. Verse 40 says this. <clears throat> so Joshua struck the whole land. <laughs> that we could have read that just without reading all those other kings, but we had to read it. So Joshua struck the whole land and the hill country and Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to its destruction. He sure uses that phrase a lot. Devoted to destruction all that breathed. Just as the Lord, of God, the Lord God of Israel commanded and Joshua struck them. From as far as Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen. And Joshua captured all these kings, their land, at one time. Not at the same time, but in those battles. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And what happened at the end? Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. I'm sure to take a huge break rest and to ponder what God has just done. Now there's we always have to remember that victory is ours but it's never well two things it's never exactly what we thought it was going to be and it's never as short as we thought it was going to be. Some, some victories take a lifetime. So as we talked about the pre-application in this message there are a few things that I want to leave you with today. And I think we're right on time to not keep you too long. There's five things that I want to talk about. First one, God is in control of all circumstances that his people face and of all the outcome of their actions. Believe that with all your heart. He is in total control of all circumstances that we face and also the outcomes of those events. Number two, God's back is never turned. <laughs> Nothing can slip into your life without his knowledge. What does Psalm 121 verse 4 says? Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. One of the great foundations of the gospel faith is that we know that nothing occurs outside the sovereign will of God. That's Romans 8.28 says, For all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We use that verse a lot. Number three, remember verse 14. I love verse 14 when he said, The Lord heeded the prayer of a man, for he fights for his people. Know that if we pray according to his will, he will answer. And there's the key. When you're in the midst of prayer and, the God, and God's spirit begins to impress upon you something or someone or some event to pray for, you're, you're always praying, God, if this be your will, let this happen. If this be your will, if this is something that you want to see happen, I pray for it with all my heart. I don't, I don't open the day praying for a boat and a, you know, a bigger house and a, more land and more money. I always feel that seems so superfluous to what God wants me to do. When God blesses us, with those things, we say, wow, that's really cool. But what we pray for has to do with people. It has to do with our relationship to God. And people are the most difficult ones to work with. There are, what, five, six billion people on this planet now? I don't know. There's a lot. I don't rub shoulders with all of them. I, I read about them. I hear about them. I know what's going on around the world. But I, I rub shoulders with a few people. And they rub shoulders with me, and I know I can be annoying. <laughs> and so can you. <laughs> so it's, that's, that's what God has called us to do, to somehow, in the body of Christ, figure out how to manage and get along with each other and see God's program advance. 
and it doesn't matter whether we're 10 or 10,000, we will have issues constantly to deal with as we rub shoulders with people. Fourth, God is, this one is a tough one. God is ruthless about sin and evil. We have to remember what God was doing in the book. We always have to remember what was it that had come to his nostrils in a sense that was so vile, so evil, and so uh, something had to be dealt with. And at that point, God says, that's enough. And he dealt with it. That's why it was so important for this tiny little land of Israel not to allow the rest of the world to continually come in and bombard them with their own religions and their own paganism and all the rest of it. He said, you've got to keep yourself separate from that sort of stuff. And where did Israel get in trouble? Exactly that. Some good kings, some bad kings. Some kings didn't, they tore down all the idols, the bad kings came back in and brought the idols back. So I mean, there's, that's human nature, up and down. That's the story of Israel. Continues to be the story. But it's a lesson for us. The church oftentimes does that as well. We are living in a time right now where the, where the church has the ability, I think more than ever, to speak to issues that really concern people's hearts. Things that are really upsetting them and bothering them because they see where the world is going. They see what their neighbors are doing. They see what people believe. And it's becoming clearer and clearer about those who believe and those who do not. It's easy to see. And so it's, that's a good thing, and yet there's, there's time in our own life where God says, Joe, that's enough. You've got to stop that now. He's ruthless with us about sin and things that are evil. The last one is this. What part does the miracle of the gospel, the bloody cross and the empty tomb that Joe refers to a lot, what part does that play in your life and mine? We believe, don't we? We have to believe in miracles. Because it's a miracle that changes someone's life with the gospel. And before we... That's it for me today, but... Before we go into communion, which is kind of an important part of our service, there's an old song, a lot older than me, okay, so it's not something that I wrote. It was written 300 years ago. Some of the hymns of the faith are classics. Some of them are, have a message that is really stirring. And this one is, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Savior die? Did he devote that sacred head? And then he uses the word for a worm such as I. <laughs> and then another verse says, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. And the chorus is all that I can do. And the chorus, you know, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. So the cross is the central part of this entire book. This is a big book. How many of you have ever read it cover to cover? Not that I, you know, we get some crown for that, but there's, there's a lot in there. If you follow the, the one-year Bible where you can read the entire Bible in a year, it takes effort to do that because there's a lot of reading that takes place. But there's something about it when we allow that to permeate everything that we think about, everything that we do, everything that we believe, everything that we're bombarded with that goes against our God and our Savior. There's just something we owe him everything. So when we when we take communion together, which is what we'll do, communion, as you know, <clears throat> is a family affair. It is something that is for believers. It doesn't hurt if someone takes communion and is not a believer, it doesn't hurt them. But it doesn't mean what it means 
to us as part of God's family. Because in that representation, again, these monuments that we look to, these, these gravestones that we read about, about people, these history books that we read about what God has done, when we, when we take this simple bread and juice together, and what it represents, what it pictures in our mind, I, I guarantee it when you take communion, that things flash in your head every time you do it. Things about what he has done, things about what Jesus has done. Oh, I would love to have seen him face to face, but I'd love to have seen him when he walked out of that tomb. <laughs> but he, he set this down for us. He's the one that set it down for us. He laid it out. When you do this, he says, remember me. Remember what it is I did for you. Remember the miracle of my life. Remember the miracle of my death and resurrection. And that's it. That's what it's all about. You can do it every day if you want. You can do it twice a year. You can do it every Sunday. You can do it as often as you want. It doesn't matter. But as often as we do it, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Maybe today would be the day. But we do it as often as we do it to remember what he did. But you have to believe, and I have to believe, that was a miracle. No one can explain the resurrection. Can't. That's where faith comes in. Either we believe it or we don't. But as a family, we share that together. The body, the broken body, and the shed blood of Christ. You can do it at home, even. It's good to do it with your family. Because it helps us to remember. When you go... When you look at a, uh, a monument or when you look at a graveside of a loved one, what happens when you do that? <laughs> you see their name, you see when they were born, you see when they died. Maybe there's, a little, maybe there's a little phrase there that tells you something about them. But instantly, if you know and love that person, something comes to mind to you. And that's what this is supposed to do. It should bring to mind what Jesus has done for you. Let me read out of 1 Corinthians 13 real quick. Oh, not 13, sorry. 11. I was going to do the love chapter there for a minute, sorry. <laughs> for I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, Paul says, and then so eat and drink of the cup. So there's a, there's a process that we go through in our own minds where we, we kind of, it's like the, the credits at the end of a, of a movie where you see all the the people that put it together and the, and the people that starred in it and all the rest. But there's something about when we take this communion together, that's exactly what happens. Your life kind of flashes before you. And also the, the last week maybe does, or the last year, whatever. Something flashes before you when you take the Lord's cup. Because we are to examine ourselves. 
not just to make sure that we're part of the family of God, to make sure that I really 100% understand what it is that I'm doing. And that this miracle is something that I get to partake in. So, let's pray together, and then we're going to sing together. And you come, you'll find on my left and my right and in the middle and in the back of the room, find a place where you can come. You either pray with somebody or come up here to the middle and, and pray with yourself, to yourself, and take communion alone if you so prefer. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your grace to us. We thank you, Father, for the stories, the, the narratives that we read, Lord, that sometimes, Lord, they're hard to get through sometimes, and yet, as we put them all together and we see your handiwork and we see the miracles that you perform to keep all this going, and then we ultimately, Lord, think about the ultimate miracle, and that is the miracle of Christ. And so, Father, uh, with that, we examine our hearts, we examine, we, we, we plow through our mind, Lord, to look for things that need not be there. We, we, we cleanse our heart in such a way that we are ready, Lord, to partake together as a family this is a family affair. We do it together as a body of Christ, as is done all around the world. And so, Father, I pray right now that you would minister to us again, continue to minister in this service. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, and we'll thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.